Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. What can we learn from historical attempts to live and raise children differently? Kristen Godsey is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Everyday Utopia, a new guide to experimental communities from the Pythagoreans to the present day. She talked to the journalist, author and broadcaster Angela Saini about the past, present and future of experiments in family life. Kristen and I, we have a lot in common, but one of the things we have in common is that we're both fans of Star Trek, and we both make Star Trek references in our latest books, which is interesting. Can you just mention quickly, what is it about Star Trek that you love so much? Oh, I, you know, it's the hope. It's the optimism. It's the amazing energy that the show has been bringing to people, fans of multiple generations around the world different socioeconomic classes. You know, I think I I went to my first European Star Trek convention last year. Uh, it's called FedCon in Bonn. It was in Germany. And it was just this amazing space of positive energy and joy. And, you know, shared, obviously fandoms are often about a shared collective cultural experience. But I think that Star Trek does something really interesting about you know, in a world that's filled with dystopian visions of the future, Star Trek kind of keeps us thinking that maybe things could get better. Maybe there will be a future for us after all. Yeah. And it is a very hopeful future, the one that Star Trek presents. I mean, albeit all the terrible wars and invasions and things that happen at the end, you get this sense that everything will we'll figure it out and we'll be good people in, <laughs> at the very end of it all. Yeah. And the other thing that I think that I love about Star Trek is, you know, this idea that there's like, there are rules. It's like, there's sort of this weird military thing going on and there's the prime directive. But then like every single episode is Picard or Kirk or whoever's captain at the particular moment of time, Michael Burnham, they break the rules constantly, right? (laughs) So, So there's this weird way in which it's also a show that kind of shows the way that people have to adapt to the circumstances, like no set of rules, no political system, no particular order or way of being in the world is ever going to be perfect. It's always going to have to be flexible and adaptable in order to meet the challenges because you never know, the board could be around the corner, right? So that to me is also a really inspiring message. It's never just about a hero. It's always about a team and it's always about how a team of people kind of are faced with a weird sense of, chaos, you know, the crazy things are happening in that show all the time. And yet they kind of sit around a table, they deliberate, and then they come up with a plan. And then that plan just that institutes the rest of the episode. So I don't know, I think that it's a show that really celebrates flexibility and creativity and optimism. It's a it was prefigurative politics before that term even existed, right? Rather than saying, okay, well, here's how we got to an interracial bridge, they just did it. 
you know? And I think that's just fantastic. It is. And actually, that sums up a lot of your book, um, because your book is really about uh, giving us a license to think outside the box, to not feel hemmed in by whatever we feel is normal and ordinary that we have just got used to and just ask, why cannot? Why can't we be radical? Why can't we be utopian? That isn't as crazy as we are made to feel it must be. Um, but I just want to start, I mean, for an academic, you write so accessibly, but also you include a lot of yourself in your work. And in this book, particularly, you talk about your childhood and the circumstances you grow up in, which are really useful to understanding why you look to utopian communities as an alternative. Um, so can you, for the people watching, can you explain a little bit about your childhood and why that has shaped your work so much? Well, I mean, I basically think that writing about oneself is kind of essential to the ethnographic project, right? If you're going to be writing about anything in the world, but especially giving advice to other people about how they should or shouldn't be living their lives, you have to kind of include a little bit about yourself. And what we call in anthropology, we have this fancy word called positionality, like the way you are in the research. And so for me, it really is, this project emerges in a really interesting way out of my own experiences of not having, a, I had a very traditional nuclear family life, but it was not a very functional one. And at a certain age, I basically ran away from home and I ended up living with my English teacher and her husband. They had grown children who had, you know, gone off to college and were living their lives. And so they kind of took me in. I was a bit of a refugee of a pretty badly broken home. And so the care that they showed me, these were not my parents. They, I mean, I literally only knew this teacher. I had had her for several years in a row and she knew me very well. She'd kind of seen me. I'd had her since I was like 13 and I ran away from home when I was 17. So there was a way in which I had an established relationship with this person, but there was no world in which I imagined as a young teenager that somebody who was not my parent, not a biological relative of mine, would be able to show me the kind of love and care and affection that a complete stranger would. I mean, not a complete stranger, but you know, she was not in any way related to me. And that really, I, I, I think I learned that lesson at a very young and extremely impressionable age. And as I've gone through my life, I have heard other types of stories like this. It's not very common that people go live with their English teachers. But there, there are these stories of children who, for one reason or the other, didn't have the love and support that they needed in their natal families, and they find other allo parents is the term that we use. People like people who are sort of, I wouldn't say substitute parents, but like supplementary parents, right? They they come in. These can be aunts, they can be uncles, they could be grandparents, they could be godparents, they could be family friends. In my case. It just happened to be a teacher uh, who knew me and who knew that, you know, I was having a rough time of things and wanted to, to kind of help me get on my way. And it's because of this teacher, Betty Olson, that I even went to college, which is really remarkable considering that I'm now a professor, right? That I probably would not have even gone to university had it not been for that intervention in my life at that particular moment of time. It is an incredible story, and it does kind of give a clue 
as to why you're so keen to challenge this idea, which is very incredibly prevalent in, in the United States in particular, that the nuclear family, the one father, one mother and children in a kind of closed system is the ideal, perfect, unbreakable, unshakable way of raising a family. Yeah. So, you know, the, the real kind of target of my intellectual intervention here is this idea that you have two people who are romantically attached and that that romantic attachment then becomes the appropriate container for parenthood. And that those parents then, they provide exclusive biparental care to their biological offspring, sometimes adoptive, but to their children in a single family home surrounded by their own privately owned stuff. So it's that whole constellation that at least especially in the United States is really hegemonic. It's what people think is normal and natural. And what we know from the evolutionary anthropological record, as well as from cross-cultural studies, that this is just one way of organizing a family and it's a relatively recent invention. And so what I really like to hammer home is that in some ways we've inherited, we meaning like people living in the contemporary moment, we've inherited a family form that was uniquely suited to sort of the middle of the 20th century. And we are outgrowing that family form. And so we have to really think creatively about how we're going to organize our lateral relationships of care and support, as well as our intergenerational relationships of love and care and support in order to kind of face these many different challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. And and why do you think that it is outgrowing its usefulness in the 21st century? Why was it useful at all in the 20th century? Well, I think it was useful because we were in a historical moment of I would say the the superpower rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union plays a big role in the background here. And as you know, I am a scholar of Russian and East European studies. So this is always something that I keep in the back of my mind is why did we do things a particular way? So books like Elaine Tyler May's Homeward Bound really shows the way in which the nuclear family became this sort of rigid way of expressing Americanness to oppose our identity to the Soviet Union and the kind of crazy things that we thought that they were doing with the family, especially with women's emancipation. But I think that the other really key thing is an ecological argument and an argument about the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. So the 20th century, particularly the period after the Second World War, was a period of rapid economic growth and accumulation. And in order to have that rapid economic growth, you have to have a certain set of social relations in the home to produce workers and consumers and taxpayers. And you also have to generate a certain amount of inequality. And the nuclear family is extremely useful, particularly this version of it that I'm talking about in the book, for facilitating the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege from fathers in a patriarchal society to their legitimate sons. And so that family form was developed in the context of the Cold War at a period of time when we thought that the Earth's resources were abundant and that unlimited economic growth was a good thing, that the faster we could grow, the the more we could extract and make use of the Earth's resources 
And this uh, maintaining a sort of, you know, what a lot of economists will call like a healthy level of inequality in order to inspire people to be industrious, that all of those things were really kind of unique artifacts of this middle of the 20th century. And now uh, what we've seen is that that family unit is very fragile. It breaks very easily. People are really lonely and isolated. There was a Cygnus study from 2021 that showed that over 60% of mothers and fathers are lonely, report being lonely. Single parents, obviously, 77% of them report being lonely. So this, this family unit, first of all, it makes us much more isolated and lonely if it breaks. But it also exacerbates intergenerational inequalities which are becoming unsustainable. And finally, and I think most importantly, it is not the family form that we need to deal with an earth where its, abun- its resources are no longer abundant and its unlimited economic growth is no longer sustainable. I mean, I think the heat wave in the last summer, of this 2023, right? It's like the, the hottest summer on record. We have to understand that it's not just our formal institutions, economically and politically, that need to make changes. It's also our private lives. And this book is a way of operationalizing change in our private lives in the absence of government interventions here. These are things that we can do in our own lives that will make us live more connected and contented and ultimately more sustainable lives in the future. There are many cultures around the world that have extended family homes in which people don't live just in that nuclear family but have many Um, members of the family that they live with and sometimes bigger extensions of that and in fact I remember when my parents first moved to Britain at that point in time this is the late 70s early 80s it was quite common for people to take in other immigrants who had moved (laughs) and kind of welcome them into the circle and treat them like aunts and uncles or sisters and brothers just because we were all in the same boat together and there was never in my imagination at least any distinction between them and family. It just felt that we were all family together. So that idea of extending the family or what we think of as the family really runs right the way throughout your work. Can you give some examples then of other societies, other communities that have tried different things, different ways of organising the family? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p, with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Yeah, so, I mean, in many ways, the book is really about unpacking the all of the bits of this sort of family package, you know, the housing part, the childcare part, the education part, the property part, and then ultimately the family form part. And so I think that I'll give some very concrete examples, but I, the one really clear thing that I want to get across is that, 
human beings, you know, if we if we think about evolutionary anthropology and evolutionary biology, we understand that there's this concept of cooperative breeding, right? So that we've always had, you know, there's that old cliche, it takes a village. Well, it does take a village. Parenthood was always, you know, babies are born, human babies are born essentially premature, they're born in rapid succession, very different from our non-human primate cousins. And they re- babies require a lot of provisioning. So it really helps if you have multiple adults who are able to do the provisioning. These could be grandmothers. These could be older siblings of the child, but they can be non-kin as well. So the key thing that I want to say in the book is that our mating practices, so the ways in which we, we form our romantic attachments, are separable from our childbearing practices. And I think that's really interesting, right? So that you can have communities where you have pair-bonded people, who then raise their children collectively. And in the book, I talk about like the kibbutzim in Israel or various uh, secular communities in the United States like Twin Oaks, which is an intentional community where some people are pair bonded, but they generally tend to raise their children collectively. We also have, I think you have them in, in, in Britain as well, uh, in the United States, the Bruderhof, which are, I call them in the book, the Bible communists. Um, these are a group of pacifist Christians who live together essentially in a commune, but they're also, they're pair bonded, but they raise their children collectively as well. So then at the other extreme, you have like the Oneida community in upstate New York, which existed for about 30 years after 1848. And they were group married to each other. So a bunch of people, uh, men and women, about 300 of them all married to each other. And they, all of the children from that experiment uh, were then raised sort of collectively, which interestingly reflects the way that Plato in the Republic said that the guardians would raise their children. So then outside of that model, so there's like the group marriage model, like what we might call polyamory sort of, and then there's monogamy. Obviously, many cultures still practice polygamy. Uh, certain cultures, we still have polyandry, uh, polyandry, which is one woman with multiple husbands great way of keeping birth rates down in the absence of birth control. And when you have scarce resources, polyandry tends to actually limit human population growth in a way that is very adaptive to extreme circumstances. Or uh, also when you have wars and there's a shortage of men. Oh, gosh, absolutely. So we also see very clearly that human family forms adapt if there are the shortage of men for some reason or a shortage of women for some reason. We immediately, as humans, right, we will change the way we decide what is normal about our mating practices and what is normal about our childbearing practices. But I also talk about in the book, and I think this is something really important, which are celibate communities. So people like, you know, Benedictine monks or the Begin nuns, uh, various, the Albigensians, uh, the Bogomils, these are different, the Shakers in the United States. These were different communities who committed to celibacy for one reason or another, but they still took in orphans and they still took in unwanted children, children who were born out of wedlock or pregnant women who you know got pregnant out of wedlock. And they cared for those children and raised those children collectively as well. And so what I'm trying to get at in the book is that human beings, as you've pointed out, across cultures and trans-historically, have always had very flexible, creative, and adaptive ideas about how we're going to organize our domestic lives. 
And so in 2023, to sit around and think that there's only one right way to do family, you know, is really a problem, I think. And it's actually making a lot of people very unhappy because they don't fit the box or they don't, um, you know, they, they, they're, they feel like they've failed because they haven't achieved this thing that everybody says is, you're supposed to achieve by, you know, a certain age. And, you know, we have so much creativity now in the United States and, and around the world around things like platonic parenting, people who are friends and decide to have children and, you know, raise them as friends. We have momunes where a group of single mothers will buy a house together and they'll raise their kids in what is essentially a kind of communal arrangement where all of the women are looking after their kids, but they're looking after their kids together. You know, and then you have things like mitochondrial replacement therapy, which literally allows for one child to have two biological mothers and one biological father. And so like the world that we are living in right now is a world that has really, as I said, outgrown this particular model, which has become, you know, it is the ideal and it is the ideal to which many, many people aspire. And if they don't achieve that ideal, they feel like they've failed at something. And I think that that needs challenging. And in some ways, you know, all of us are not just raised by our parents. Of course, when we go to school, that schools are a version of childcare outside the home being, you know, learning all those life skills outside the home done by other people. But I imagine there will be people listening who will think with some horror of the idea that children are raised communally by hundreds and hundreds of different people that they won't necessarily have a particular attachment to their biological parents or, you know, or one particular set of parents. Um, Are there risks here? Are there dangers involved in that? I mean, how do you build very tight bonds with so many people? Okay, so this is a really great question because first of all, I mean, I'm I'm not talking about hundreds and hundreds of people, right? We're talking about like four <laughs> or, 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 you know, like primary kind of alloparental units. And then there are other people in the community around who play a role, you know, like when you used to play out on the street when I was a kid and then there would be parents in the neighborhood who kind of looked after everybody. But let's go to the empirical evidence, which I think is really important. So one, we've just come out of a pandemic And as you pointed out, children are not only raised by their parents, they're raised by their teachers, they're raised by neighbors, they have contact with other people in the community. If they go to a religious institution, they might have contact with the priest or a rabbi or an imam. And the key thing here is that we know that during the pandemic, children who were at home with their two biological parents, or worse, their one biological parent, they are cognitively delayed. They have not had the same number of experiences of interactions with parents as children before the pandemic. So there's a real concern there. Children need that kind of interaction with other adults. Two, there are about 100 years worth of experiments on the Israeli kibbutzim with collective child rearing. And in the Israeli case, you have the biological parents, but then you also have these designated caregivers. And it's a very, very common fear that if children attach themselves to other adults, that somehow the attachment to the primary parent will be weaker, right? I think we all have this fear. And we all have this fear in our romantic relationships too, right? Even with our friends sometimes. Like if if my friend spends too much time with somebody else, then that somehow is going to diminish my, 
you know, um, relationship with that person. But I have, I think we have to, first of all, recognize that studies have been done. Children can have secure attachments to multiple adults. It does not diminish the primary attachment to the parent. It actually adds to that attachment because the weight right, that children are so incredibly dependent on their parents, that if, again, something goes wrong in that relationship, and this can go wrong on either side. Look, I've had a teenager, (laughs) and I can tell you that as much as fun as children can be, there are moments when you can really, really not like your child (laughs) for for things that they're doing, which you told them not to do, but they did anyway. Um, And so, Having another adult in that life, in, in, in that child's life, or multiple other adults where that child can go and say, my mom is being unreasonable, or I did something really bad and my mom is really angry, that actually takes pressure off of that relationship with me. It actually makes that relationship stronger. And I think that that's something that people don't realize. You know, if you were raised with aunts and uncles or godparents, or like a a kind of a fictive kin, you know, uncle so-and-so who just happened to be around on weekends, but like taught you how to, you know, hit a baseball or taught you, you know, how to roller skate or something. Like those relationships are really important. And I agree that the fear that your child might love you less is a reasonable fear. It It is a legitimate concern because we tend to think of love and affection as zero sum. If somebody else gets more, I get less. But it turns out, I think, that love and affection and emotional attention, I mean, you know, within limits, obviously, is it, it's a kind of interestingly sort of self-replicating thing. If you live in a community of people who are loving and caring and supporting each other, it actually makes it easier to love and care and support for more people. And I think there's good evidence for that. It's, this is not just like a hunch, right? I think there's a re, there's a way in which by isolating ourselves the way we have in contemporary societies, we are seeing this massive epidemic of self-reported loneliness. It's it's happening. There was a, there was a, isn't there a whole commissioner for loneliness in the UK, right? Um, people are feeling isolated, and I would say is this is especially true for men. Men get all of their primary emotional support, usually from their romantic partners. And, you know, if that partner goes away or if something happens, you know, the partner dies or whatever, there, it's very, very difficult to recreate the lateral networks that you need in order to not feel isolated. So the problem, I think, with contemporary society, and I'm sure you've had this happen, you have probably had friends, you know, so you might be in a friend group in your 20s, you have, you know, a bunch of people that you might go out, you know, go down to the pub with or go to the movies with or whatever you see, go for coffee. But then as people start to couple up, they spend less time with their friends, you know, they, or they start having couple friends, special couple friends, right? Um, and then even those relationships start, you know, as your kids are at a certain age, you just get home at the end of the day and you're just like, I just want to stream Netflix and go to bed. Like, I don't want to deal with anything. So there's a way in which we've allowed our, the the same way during the pandemic that we allowed our social muscles to atrophy because we didn't have the opportunity to socialize with people. I think that there's many things about contemporary life where we trade the experience of building community for convenience and for time saving. And that that is actually really hurting us. And we are not evolutionarily adaptive to isolation and loneliness. It's physically making people sick. And so 
part of what I'm saying is that if you're in a heterosexual relationship or if you're in a paired relationship of whatever, with person of whatever gender, and open that relationship up, and it doesn't necessarily have to be sexually, but just like spend time with other people. It's not that hard, right? Go go down, you know, to a bar and have a beer once in a while. Or, you know, there are things like men's sheds, right? Where you can go and like use tools and meet other people. Um, and if you have kids, like let them spend more time with their grandparents, let them spend more time with their, maybe their aunts and uncles or their godparents or, or you know, people in the community, neighbors, you know, do more, let them do more sleepovers. Like, just let them experience more people. Now, the one thing that I think is interesting here is that, because you asked specifically about risks, and I don't want to evade this because I do think that there is some research to show that step parents are not necessarily a good thing. Um, but that is also kind of a contested bit of research because it's very specifically kind of about stepfathers. Um, and th- it's also this, we have this problem in the United States and in many countries where children are only really allowed to have two biological parents and, um, and, and because you can't have it, you can't add a third, right? So there's a way in which our laws really complicate this relationship. And certainly some people will fear that having more adults around might increase rather than decrease the chance for certain forms of abuse. However, again, if you look at the studies, the nuclear family is a box in many places that hides an incredible amount of dysfunction. And what usually saves children is other adults who happen to be in the orbit of that family who intervene. And so in in fact, again, I think children are protected by having more adults. They are not at greater risk, although it might seem intuitive that they are. It actually helps to have other parents or other allo parents around to look out for the welfare of that child. If, you know, I mean, let's not even just talk about abuse. Like just think about postpartum depression, right? Postnatal depression. There are all sorts of ways in which parents might just not, might be overwhelmed and they need help and nobody's going to help them. So it is something that we should discuss more clearly and we should definitely look at the empirical studies that have been done. But I am, based on my experience and based on my understanding and based on my readings of the vast majority of the studies, I think that there's, there is room here for real hope, both that children can form secure attachments to their parents and other allo parents, and that children are more protected when they are in perhaps dysfunctional homes. And finally, I'll just say one last thing. Um, I also think our romantic relationships will be stronger if not all of the weight of parenting is only put on the shoulders of two people, especially if they're also trying to like have careers and put food on the table. Parenting is incredible. It's a contact sport. You need as much help as you can. And I think that because parents are under so much strain, if there's only two, they end up fighting with each other. And it actually ends up damaging that relationship, which then ends up breaking the family apart. And so, again, if you think about the idea of having lateral relationships of support and care that are outside of this 
primary unit. And you can still be the primary unit. I'm not saying that we have to break it up. I'm just saying that it should be submerged into a sea of other units of people. I think everybody will be better off. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I was very lucky when I was raising, when my husband and I were raising our son, that we did have that sea of people. Um, we deliberately chose to live in apartment buildings with other people that we knew that he could play with them. We would always have people there around us. And we didn't do it consciously. We just knew that that would work better for us. And it did. What you've been talking about so far has been more on the kind of the way that we structure our own families, the relationships that we nurture around us. But there's also the other side of the equation, which is the state. What does the state do to either encourage other family forms or other ways of living? Or how can it, you know, redesign itself altogether to create a different, more radical form of utopian society? And of course, like you mentioned, your background, a lot of your work has been on the Soviet Union. What lessons or what ideas can we draw from that period of time? With all the required caveats, of course, I know everybody would just say, we're not, yeah. you're in no way sanctioning authoritarianism or the brutality of the Soviet Union. But this was, as you, you've written, not just in this book, but in others, um, a real attempt to smash the patriarchy in a way. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think that that because my previous work was really about what we could learn from those experiments. And, you know, this these were real experiments, right? So in the sense that they legalized divorce, this was a really radical thing to do in Russia in 1917. They uh, abolished adoption, right? The idea was that children should not be taken advantage of, especially because at this time children were used for agricultural labor, right? So that the state would come in and actually help these children. They they did things like build public cafeterias and public laundries. They built kindergartens and creches to try to socialize some of this parental work that I've been talking about. And in, and, you know, they did things like let women keep their own names, you know, so to break the patrilineality of, of some of these uh, social systems that we're talking about. But what I want to say is that this book is really about, even though I think it would be wonderful if we had universal child care, for instance, in the United States, or for that matter, universal medical care would be really nice too. This book is really about what ordinary people can do in the absence of the state. Like if you live in a state, like I sort of feel I do, where the government really isn't responsive on these issues. The family is a black box for a variety of reasons and they don't really want to touch it. You know, that it was it was a huge fight to get same-sex marriage, you know, um, and who knows how long that's going to last. Like we've already lost the right to abortion. So I think that in the absence of the state, there are still 
points of intervention that we can make in our private lives that will end up actually trickling up to the state. So where East European models of socialism were really kind of top-down models of saying, here are some theories, we're going to change the laws, we're going to change the administrative structure, we're going to change the property regime, we're going to change relations legal relations between men and women as far as marriage is concerned and, and the relate they abolished another thing they did is they abolished the distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children. So if you think of the family as this unit in society that facilitates the intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege, if you abolish the distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children, you're abolishing the role that that family plays. Not to mention that you can also abolish inheritance, right? So or you could do something really radical and you know give everyone in society there's a wonderful proposal right now from Thomas Piketty uh, about giving everybody like 150,000 euro when they turn 25, right? So there are all ways that you can undermine this intergenerational transfer of wealth and privilege and they really tried to do that from the top down. But this book and, it, and this actually makes me it gets under my skin when people say that I'm like proposing socialism because in fact this is much more of a bottom-up book, right? I'm saying in the absence of state intervention, ordinary people, if we start to widen our networks of love and care, we are already making changes in the way that our societies are going to function because A, we're going to be less lonely and less isolated. B, we're going to be um, living more sustainably because we'll be sharing our goods with a greater number of people. And C, I think we really will be undermining this um, intergenerational transfer of inequality, which is really becoming sort of turbocharged with things like assortive mating and um, and the ways in which, you know, the hyper-rich are constantly trying to transfer privileges to their children in order to, to just get let them have a normal life. I mean, the cost of housing cost of living crisis in the UK and, and the cost of housing. And there's so many ways in which I think the gig economy, modern life is just grinding young people down. And so many of these young people are making the decision, not irrational decision, to just not have children at all. And what I'm trying to say in the book is, yes, I mean, if that's what you really want, then you can do that. But if you actually want to have kids and you're just worried about the world, have your kids differently. Don't fall into the trap of this particular normal way of doing it. There are other ways of creating what many people call chosen families that really can nurture us. And as we are more nurtured and supported, we'll be less economically precarious. We may own personally less stuff, but we'll have access to more stuff because we'll be sharing it with a broader number of people. Now, of course, that's bad for capitalism because that means we'll be shopping less, <laughs> right? And so, but but on the other hand, you know, uh, declining birth rates are also pretty bad for capitalism. So there's a way in which, yes, I do think that there's an intervention point at the level of our personal lives. Friendship, romance, child rearing, these are all extremely political things that we do, but we don't think of them as political because we have been told over and over again that politics means like going to campaign or going on a, a march or voting at the ballot box or something or the else. But, but, but just, you know, hanging out with your friends in the park and drinking a bottle of wine on Sunday is politics.
<laughs> just pushing back. I mean, that's what I love. Just see those little acts of doing things differently outside the norm is a form of political resistance and a form of pushing back. We are mentioning patriarchy here, and I feel that we can't talk about patriarchy now without talking about the Barbie movie. Have you seen the Barbie movie, and how did? Uh, what did you think of it? Yeah. So, okay, this is just I, I, I know, and I know that your book—it's got this wonderful pink cover. It is bit. It has been on all these Barbie, you know, um, reading lists because of Ken and the patriarchy. And, you know, I, so I've actually, I'll admit, I saw it twice. I saw it like the big premiere. And then I went back to do sort of like a critical analysis of the movie because I really wanted, I was like, okay, this is a popular culture event. I mean, just look at the box office takings. And yet it's also a movie, I think, that mentions the word patriarchy eight times. And it, it's explicitly talking about patriarchy. And at the same time, it's also showing us this kind of weird imagining of matriarchy and what matriarchy looks like. And so for me, and I would love to get your take on this, like I sort of was wondering if Greta Gerwig and her husband were out there reading, you know, Bakofen and Morgan and Engels and sort of trying to think through what a primitive matriarchal communist Barbie society would look like because there aren't, there is no production going on. There's no children to be raised. We keep, we keep seeing the specter of pregnant midge, you know, the doll. And they keep saying, Oh, well, we discontinued you. Like we're not, we're not allowing pregnancy to happen here. And there's this way in which, you know, first of all, you know, if you've ever heard the term like pinko commie, like the pink, of Barbie land and the fact that they all just sort of have leisure all day. Nobody really produces anything. Nobody really buys anything. Nothing really happens there, but they're just basically having a party all the time. And I was thinking about like the dawn of everything and Pirate Enlightenment, these David Graeber books that have recently come out where he talks about like how often people came together just to party, like just to have a good time. And so the the for me the 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 moment when Ken comes back you know he discovers patriarchy in the real world and then he comes back and the Gloria the character played by America Ferrera basically says well it's like the native americans and smallpox they had no natural resistance right so like patriarchy comes and like infects Barbie land with horses and brewskis and guitars and there's just there there's like all this sort of trappings of of like almost like a Potemkin patriarchy where because there's no production going on in Barbie land and because nobody, I mean, everybody, every Barbie seems to be pretty equal, right? They have different jobs, but everybody's got a dream house and everybody seems to have a nice car and they hang out on the beach all day. So there's this really interesting way in which patriarchy, like it doesn't really work in an, in a society that is not based on inequality, patriarchy is a technology that allows for the the long-term maintenance of inequality in society. And I thought that that was a pretty radical thing for the Barbie movie to be dealing with. Not that people will see that, but for me, it was like, whoa, how much of this was intentional and how much of this was just sort of playing with these words, you know, of, of, of patriarchy and matriarchy? What did you think? 
Yeah, I did think there were some really clever concepts woven in there. I'm a bit conscious of the fact that not everyone will have seen the film and we're giving away so much of it. Oh, right spoiler, now. sorry. But um, yeah, I did think some of it was very clever. Um, but having written about matrilineal societies myself, I did feel that it's a kind of false dichotomy to imagine that the only alternative to matriarchy is patriarchy, that the only alternative to patriarchy is Barbie land, because of course that's <laughs> not true. Um, but it does seem that way. You know, often when people think of a radical society, they think of the opposite of whatever they have. And you're so careful in your work to just remind them that actually, no, there are so many options. There are so many different ways of doing things. There isn't just the opposite that you can choose we have choices that we're able to exercise here. Yeah, and I think that that's really a, a, a really important point. Like humanity, we are creative and adaptable and flexible. Like the, the evolutionary record here is really unequivocal on this point. We are able to come up with the craziest things. There's a there's a um, a, a line in the film where they say that the only humans could come up with ide abstract ideals like Barbie and patriarchy. I can't remember exactly what the line is, but it's something like that, right? And the, the idea is in so many ways, we want to, we are like, we want to order things. And so we want to have a clear and stable sense of how the world works, but it doesn't stay static. It never has. And so to, to stop you know, for even a second and just like look at history and and to project into the future the idea that the way things are now are the way that they're going to continue to be is just like utter, it's just nonsense. It, it, it just doesn't make any logical sense, right? You know, so people will talk about like the butterfly effect. Like if you go back in time and you like squish a butterfly, like the entire future could change. Well, doesn't that mean that like if I had this conversation with you an hour ago instead of right now, maybe your future would be different. Maybe like everything in the present is completely contingent. And so that means that the future is also contingent. And this is where I think the important power of hope is. And, you know, at the end, you know, I'm not going to say anything else about Barbie because I realize that there are lots of spoilers out there, but, but I, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to overthink it, but, but I, cause it's just a fun, you know, good summer movie and, uh, and the cast was great and the music is fun and, you know, the costumes, the whole thing, it's just like effervescent. Uh, and it was for me as an experience, it was also so nice to be in a movie theater full of people having a blast. It was really a joyous occasion. And that I've missed that, right? Um, but I also think that hope, we have to be hopeful. We have to realize that we can change the future. And, and part of changing the future is just doing absolutely little insignificant things in our daily lives right now, together with other people and making choices about how we want the future to be. Absolutely. Uh, we have some really lovely questions already from the audience. So I'll read out this one. It's from Natalia. She wrote, Kristen really loved your book, finished it last week. You talk about resisting in place by bringing aspects of communal life to our current structure. But is there a risk of this diluting the potentially powerful effects of completely rejecting the current default? Yes. And I spend a lot of time at the end of the book talking about that, about that. So resisting in place is a wonderful phrase that comes from Jenny O'Dell, how to do nothing. 
And uh, I love her work. And I do recognize that for some people, the, the withdrawal into the self, into our families and our communities can feel like a disengagement from the, the greater political struggle. And I recently had a conversation with somebody of uh, older generation who was talking about the problem of utopian communes during the Vietnam War. And there were all these people who were protesting Vietnam. And then there were all these people who were like, you know, off in the middle of the woods, like living in a camp, smoking a lot of pot or whatever. And the, what, the one thing that he didn't mention were all the draft dodgers in the United States. All those guys who like said, I'm out of here, I'm going to Canada. And while he was saying that the utopian withdrawal people, the resisting in place people, so to speak, were hurt the protest movement, the anti-war movement, I was arguing that actually the draft dodgers, even though they were being the most selfish, right, by leaving to Canada and not even engaging at all, they actually had a much more powerful, right, um, influence. And so the question of strategy is always difficult. And I recognize that some people fear that if we, if we resist in place too much, that we lose the ability to kind of topple the system in some kind of like upheaval type way. But I really take inspiration from the work of David Graeber here in Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. And what he says is some of the, way, the best ways to resist is just to not show up, to just not engage. Like, and, and if you don't play the game, like as much as I am in favor of protest and activism, I've also lived long enough to see how those activists and those protest movements can get co-opted by capital. And we get NGOs, and we get nonprofit organizations, and they just get toothless, right? Look at all the environmental stuff that's happening. And feminism, for that matter. And, oh, God, and feminism. Absolutely, right? So, I mean, it just became, you know, uh, to use Nancy Fraser's term, like the handmaiden of neoliberalism, right? So it's a very, very important concern, and I'm cognizant of it, but at the same time, Sometimes I think we have to start somewhere and, 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 and starting with the things that we can control, you know, sharing a car with even just one neighbor means one less car on the road. If everybody did that, we would have the number of cars or have the number of cars. So, you know, sharing a lawnmower, <laughs> you know, there are small things that we can do that add up in the aggregate the same way, by the way, that individual women and men and, and people of all genders who are deciding not to have children individually are creating this massive demographic death spiral in many countries. It's not a coordinated event. Nobody, it's not a protest. It's not a strike. People are just saying, nah, no kids. And that's got, oh, it has a huge impact on the state. States are very nervous about this. It is not about a coordinated activist protest. It's just individual people making decisions about their individual lives, which is messing up the future of capitalism. So so it, we can have both, is what I want to say. Um, and Aurelie writes here, you mentioned the Greeks to show the foundations of reimagining domestic life. Did you find any non-European alternatives to the nuclear family? Yeah, so I, I talk a lot in the book about the original Cenobitic monastic communities in uh, the subcontinent. So we're looking at the early followers of the Buddha. 
and the ways in which they were structuring their relationships with each other, which I think, you know, become really, really important in the imagining of um, monasticism as well as celibacy. So that, for instance, in Japan, I talk about various intentional communities in Japan as well. Uh, I talk about Neyere in Tanzania. Uh, I talk about Nashira, which is a matriarchal eco-village in Colombia. So there are a lot of examples in the book about different communities in different parts of the world. But in the deep, deep, deep history, um, I really, we I share with you a fascination with Chatahoyuk in Turkey in the Neolithic period um, and the ways in which they don't seem to share our conception of kin uh, and, and as blood related. And I think that that's really fascinating. So there are lots of great examples that are non-European. Yeah. I mean, Chetelhuyuk is fascinating. I didn't delve too much into this. It's more relevant to your work really, but this is a 9,000 year old settlement in which thousands of people lived. And yet archeologists have found that children are not consistently buried in the same places as their biological parents, which really raises questions of how child rearing was done, how this community was organized. And because it's pre-writing, we really don't know. We have no we have no idea. But it's just another reminder that we haven't always lived one way, that it hasn't always been just about the nuclear family. Um, in fact, far from it, um, the further back you go. Um, Al writes, I'm thinking about rejecting patrilineality and not accepting my dad's offer to help with a house deposit. Well, this is really interesting, but this will make my life unbelievably difficult. How do we balance principle with practicality? (sighs) Wow. Okay. So patrilineality would mean taking a different name from your father. So, so here's the thing, you know, take the money for the down payment, but then give your children, if you have them, your um, partner's last name, right? Or, you know, to be really radical, just give them a mononym, which is legal in some countries now, like just one name that William Godwin uh, suggested that we should all only have uh, first names. We should not have surnames at all. So, so I, I, I do totally understand the, the challenge of this because, right, intergenerational wealth, if it exists, is in some cases the only way anybody could have any kind of housing stability in the world that we live in. And so, yeah, it's very, very, very difficult. But buy a house you know, maybe invite other people to live there, <laughs> right? You know, there are there are these ideas of like co-housing or co-living. I mean, it's not that weird. Like we all have flatmates in our 20s and that's a pretty common thing. But what if you, you know, decided if you have a good friend that is also perhaps, you know, thinking of forming a family, you could share the house with other people that are raising kids. I mean, so it, you, we can be creative, But I understand that everybody has these challenges that, you know, where the rubber hits the road. How do I do X while still maintaining some kind of like fidelity to my principles? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And Marie writes, um, I brought up my kids uh, on my own. I had very little help from anyone and always worked. As a result, my kids seem to be very self-sufficient and sensible. I'm wondering if having too many adults involved and possibly love and abundance overload, which I don't think is possible personally, Marie, I'm just going to say that, may uh, result in kids who have never known hunger, they won't know how to be self-sufficient and use their own common sense. What do you think about? 
Yeah, I'm with you on this one. I don't think that kids are suffering from an overload of affection uh, and attention and care. I think that most kids are actually, you know, in a pretty severe deficit, um, especially if if you go further down the socioeconomic ladder. Now, I agree that there is a certain kind of self-sufficiency. I, you know, I ran away from home at a pretty young age. I had my first job when I was 14 because my parents divorced when I was pretty young. And I came home to an empty refrigerator for years and had to pay for whatever little food I got out of my paper route wages, so which were mostly tips, right? So I did that on my roller skates. Like I, and I do feel like that helped me, like hardened me in a way that I became like ridiculously self-sufficient. But when I got older and I had my own child, the last thing that I wanted her to do was to come home to an empty fridge you know, or to have a job, you know, delivering newspapers at four o'clock in the morning when she was 14. I mean, you know, I don't know that that was a choice that I made about that. I felt like it, it might've hardened me in certain ways, but it also hurt me in other ways, especially when I had friends who didn't have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning uh, to deliver newspapers, you know, and then get ready for school and then go to school and then do homework. And then, you know, um, figure out how to cook something because my mom was working a second job. It was like really hard. And so I was so grateful when my grandmother moved in. Um, we didn't have other family uh, on the West Coast at the time. And so when my grandma came, it was just another person to be there and to help. Um, and it was great. <laughs> so I think this could be a, a personal thing. Some kids, you know, we have, um, what's it called? Helicopter parenting, uh, where boomer parents in particular can be very, very uh, overbearing, but that's usually the biparental mode, right? They might be less over, ironically, might be less overbearing if they thought that their kids were going to be more stable. I think that helicopter parenting comes from a fear of precarity. It comes from a fear that our children won't do as well. And so we're constantly trying to overcompensate for the, the terribleness of the world that we're living in. And I understand this fear that people have that they don't want their kids to be spoiled. But love doesn't spoil a child. It's, it's it's having too many material things, or you know, not being not having any discipline in the home, things like that. So there's a balance to be had there, right. obviously. That it's not easy. Let's admit it. It's not easy for oh, anyone yeah. being a parent. We all feel like we're doing making mistakes all the time. Absolutely. It's it is so hard, actually. Yeah. Um, it actually, uh, to just to tell you another little thing about the Barbie movie. My daughter is 21. And when we went to see that film and um, they had the pregnant midge, so I actually had that doll because I used it as a teaching um, thing. Uh, I used to teach a gender studies class and I would use um, pregnant midge and then her husband, I can't remember what his name was. And it was, it was, it was really interesting to, to talk about like Barbie's vision of the family. And I never let my daughter play with it. And it, 21, that she's 21, and in the theater, the first thing that she said to me was, you never let me play with that Barbie. <laughs> she's still mad at me. Like, this is like 15 years ago. There'll you know? always be something. There'll always, <laughs> There'll be, always something, be something, right? So, ah, you know, I let her, I, against my better judgment, I let her play with Barbies. But then, like, there was a few that I kept because I wanted them to be pristine in the box so that I could show them in class with the packaging and all the text and how Barbie was, you know, the company, Mattel, was sort of trying to introduce parenthood into Barbie land. Um, but I, so 
she still resents me, you know? And again, I think you're right. Children are spoiled by material goods. They're not not spoiled by love and attention and care. What children need more than anything, frankly, what we all need more than anything is love and attention and care. That is a beautiful note to end on. Um, And I just want to say, Kristen, it's always such a pleasure to hear you talk, to read your work. Um, I hope everyone buys your book. I've got the American edition here. The UK cover is slightly different. Um, But it's a wonderful, your work is just wonderful. And I'm so grateful for your research. Thank you. Yeah, and I want to plug your book too. This is also, this is the pre, the ARC. You can see all my little tabs here. Um, it, it was so fun. I was reading this book and I'm like, oh my God. There's a it lot of like overlap. We were, yep. There's a lot <laughs> there's of overlap. It's like we were both sitting, you know, during the pandemic having all these thoughts and boom, there they are. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's been such a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Um, and thank you everyone for listening and for your excellent questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get through them all. But if at home you can just give a round of applause, I know we can't hear it, but just do it anyway. Oh, Kristen, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this episode starred Kristen Godsey and was presented by Angela Saney. The producer was Luke Naylor Perrett, and I make the show with Esme Bright. We have help from Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, please do rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>